This Saudi recording is of our regular Sunday service, March 3rd, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Thessalonians chapter 3. So finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now pay the Lord of peace himself. Now I'm sorry. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I Paul write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you for being here with us this morning. My name is Sam and I'm the lead pastor here. I'm going to pray and ask that God will speak to us through uh, this second letter. We've been going through Thessalonians. Uh, we went through the first letter and now the second letter will complete today. So if you bow with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Almighty God, Majestic Lord and Creator of all things, visible and invisible. You are the only true God. You are beyond comprehension. Your nature is so far beyond what we are. Your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts above our thoughts. Your very being utterly different than us. You are all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful and all-sovereign, in control of everything, past, present, and future. Lord, You are never surprised. 
You are never fooled. Your plans are never hindered. And though the world seems to be in chaos and is in many ways broken, stormy, and in darkness, Lord, we need not be afraid for You are its Master. That all things, Lord, are coming to pass according to Your will. And with a word, You will end it. And we look forward to that day. We admit, Father, that we are weak. That in our weakness, we do not understand. We do not see as we ought. We do not perceive like You do. That in our sin, we go our own way. That we depend upon our own strength and our own wisdom. That we pretend, Lord, that we are better than we are. That we do not seek Your kingdom first. That we do not respond to You as we ought. That instead we seek our own kingdoms and our own comfort. And we pursue our own satisfaction apart from the one in whom it is only found. Forgive us, Lord, for all of these things. We are sinners saved by grace. And yet You love us. Forgive us for our idleness. Forgive us for our entitlements. Forgive us, Lord, for the cross shows us that we always have more than we deserve. We ask, Lord, that You will give us encouragement this morning, reminding us of what is real, reminding us of the return of Your Son. Give us endurance, Lord, not to do what we want, to accomplish our plans, but to see Your mission fulfilled. For our lives are not our own, Lord. They have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, the most expensive price that could ever be paid. And so, Lord, we pray You'll help us to surrender our lives to Your Lordship, especially those areas that are not fully surrendered to You. And that, Jesus, You will return soon. And the Holy Spirit, you will help us, even this morning, to learn and to grow. Would you do the work that only you can do? The work that is in the heart. The work of conviction, the work of comfort, the work of sanctification, where you make us look more like Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience with us. It is in the name of our Lord and Savior we pray. Amen. So we're in here a series on the second life. We're talking a lot about the second life. There is a second life. There is a second death. We are in the last days. I am convinced if Paul could say it, we should say it. And as the end draws nearer to us and the return of Christ closer, the Bible teaches us through letters like 2 Thessalonians that lawlessness is going to increase on the earth. That it's already at work on the earth and it is going to get worse. According to Paul, as we saw last week, there's a restrainer. I'm convinced that law is likely this restrainer. Law restrains lawlessness that is at work right now. And in time and over time, we'll see that law is removed or so deformed as to be removed. And there will at that time become 
mass delusion which will set in amongst everyone. Wickedness will become redefined as a virtue. Men's hearts will grow cold and many will fall away. The Bible teaches most disturbingly that there is going to be no lack of spirituality. No lack of religion. That during this time there will be many people and many churches that maintain the appearance of godliness but deny its power. In other words, there will be many so-called Christians who reject God's Word and very few genuine followers of Christ who will stand firm upon it even to their deaths. This time, in the end, as it becomes more lawless, will lead to the revealing of a man of lawlessness, a false teacher who demands to be worshipped. He will lead a rebellion that will rise. And those who refuse to compromise the truth, the Bible says, will be the target of persecution just like Jesus was. Jesus Himself talked about this. He told His disciples, look, they're going to hate you just like they hated Me. And yet, we expect a different reaction at times. But Jesus plainly said, remember the word that I said to you. And in John 15.20, He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to this new church full of new converts, and they are facing a very real persecution. They are afflicted in very physical, emotional, social, economic ways. They are having a real persecution inflicted upon them from those outside the church. And as we read the letters, we also see that there is also a real deception that is coming from within the church. Paul had written last week in 2 Thessalonians, we saw that there's a counterfeit letter that's been sent to this church, perhaps other churches. And it is teaching lies about Jesus' return in the name of Paul. And Paul says this is not his teaching. And if you notice the very last verse or verses of this particular letter, Paul ensures or makes sure they understand this. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness of every letter of mine. It's the way I write. You understand why he would say that? Because there's fake letters going around. Scholars believe that Paul likely had an eye problem. Maybe happening as a result of his revelation in Acts chapter 9 where he was blinded by the light of Christ. But he literally is like, I write in big letters, this is my letter's proof. And he does that because there's false teaching going around in his name. And today in the church, there's lots of false teaching going around. In today's church, there are many false truths, new revelations, clever teachings that sound authoritative, that feel spiritual, that attract many, but they are unbiblical. More than a few Christians, pastors, churches, even entire denominations have rejected the basic, historic, orthodox, biblical teachings concerning things like hell, concerning things like homosexuality, biblical marriage, 
sanctity of life. There's many, many more. This is not new. Rejection of God's Word has been happening since Genesis 3 and it has continued through the birth of the church and it is present today. And we must be aware of that. Without doubt, the world is falling around us, but it seems and feels sometimes like the house of God is crumbling too. If the battle in the world isn't hard enough, when every new false teaching arises or what we thought was a faithful pastor falls, you begin to be reminded that the battle is actually happening in the church as well. It feels like we're in the middle of a war zone, or it should to you if you're paying attention. Being assaulted by everywhere. Now for the faithful, whether you consider yourself faithful or not, for the faithful Christian, the one following Jesus, for the one standing firm on the faith, this is kind of discouraging to see more battles being waged with in the world and then even most despairing to see some of those battles happening in the church. It's so despairing and you can begin to feel like, man, are, are, are we actually losing this battle? Is anyone else even fighting and you can be tempted to give up. And this is where the Thessalonians are at. They're tempted to give up. They're tempted to throw in the towel. The false teaching is contributing to that, and the persecution that they're experiencing is also. And so Paul is going to call the Thessalonians in view of just telling them things are going to get worse. Like this letter of comfort, this letter of encouragement is like, by the way, Jesus hasn't returned yet, so don't be shaken, but things are going to get bad. So in view of things promised to get harder, Paul is going to tell them to keep fighting the fight of faith. Fight it in the world. Fight it in the church. And trust that God is not just fighting with you. He's fighting for you. So keep fighting. This is why one of the last things Paul writes before he is on his way to Jerusalem to get beheaded is, I have fought the good fight. That will be our lives. It'll be a fight. So if we take a look at this last chapter in this second letter to the Thessalonians, we won't see a lot of battle language, but I do think that Paul is thinking about this, especially because they are literally experiencing physical battles more than likely. Faith is a battle. And more than just one of his 13 letters, Paul identifies Christians as soldiers as those who are walking in a battlefield that is kind of unfolding in their daily lives. Jesus spoke about what happens as the Word of God goes forth in one of His parables. It's called the parable of the sower. You may have heard about it before, but it's this description of a, of a sower sowing seed and seed lands in different places. It's the Word of God. And when it lands in in thorny areas. He describes what happens to someone and how they get choked out by the, by the kind of distraction and the pleasures of the world. He talks about the good soil where it plants up. And he talks about when it lands on the rocks. He says what happens is people come to faith. People get excited about Jesus, about the things of Christ. But he said that there's no root. So that excitement quickly wanes. 
And when persecutions come, and when tribulations come, they fall away. So Paul's worried about this with them. Doesn't want them to fall away. Wants to make sure that they actually have roots in Christ. That they might endure the persecutions that they are now experiencing and the ones that are to come. So by virtue of being soldiers, Christians should expect the battlefield to be difficult. Not like video game difficult, like I play it and it doesn't affect me. I mean waged in the front of you in a way that you can feel it, in a way that hurts, in a way that costs. I'm not sure we view our lives like that very often until something painful hits us. We live in a very comfortable nation. Too comfortable. It is too comfortable to be a Christian in this nation. That is not the same in Thessalonica. That is not the same in the world. And I think it's not going to be the same in the next couple years. And though right now in our lives there are seasons of ceasefire, seasons of peace, we can expect there will be seasons of warfare. And we have to remember that if we were to ask, like, what are the greatest battles in your life? I think many of our response would be, man, I'm, I'm, I'm battling to build my career and, and I'm fighting to make sure my family doesn't go nutso and I'm trying to build my retirement and I'm trying to make sure I achieve this or that or my reputation is got whatever. I want to assure you that that is not the battle, the greatest battle that we are in. We are part of of a cosmic battle where God is working and building His kingdom on earth and preparing us for eternity. That is the battle that we're in. All the rest of them are secondary. Tertiary. Not nearly as important. And so, how we fight on a daily basis, how we engage the conflicts, little and big, on a daily basis, will be determined and governed by how or what we understand the battle we're actually in. And so Paul starts to write about what I think could be best described as weapons of war. What are the weapons we're supposed to battle with? And what does he say? Finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us that the Word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. If you remember nothing else, please remember this, that if our battle, if the war that we are waging, if the fight of faith is not with flesh and blood, which it's not, then our primary weapons are not of flesh and blood either. Yes, we should battle in the physical world, in the political world, in the practical world, but that is not where the battle is. The forces we fight against are spiritual, and so our weapons must be spiritual. This is why Paul asks for prayer. He asks for this often in his letters. Reminding the Thessalonians that he is not alone, or they're not alone. You read his resume of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, he suffered a lot. He got beat up a lot, stoned a lot, persecuted a lot. He's like, you're not alone. I know you're battling. Pray for us. The best thing you can do is pray for us. Did you realize that prayer is our greatest weapon? I know know we say that. Christians are supposed to agree to that, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Prayers are greatest weapon. Yes. Prayers are greatest weapon because 
God is our greatest warrior. Newsflash. We all stink as warriors. We're bad warriors. When we talk about fighting the faith, it's not like, yep, let's go, you're strong. No, it's to recognize you're weak and you need help. Prayer is so instrumental in calling in the greatest warrior. That's how God calls Himself. Exodus 15.3 God says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Prayer is the means of grace whereby we call in the cosmic big guns to take on the gates of hell. We often take on the gates of hell with these little spiritual squirt guns we have, thinking we're all that. It's like, no way. I'm calling in the Jesus napalm, right? I'm calling in God. You have to fight. I can't fight. This is too big for me. This reminds me of a passage in 2 Chronicles 20. And you're like, really? 2 Chronicles is a book in the Bible? Yes, and you should read it, and you should read this particular chapter, highlight it, circle it, star it. It's become one of my favorite passages to go to when the battle has become too big for me to face myself, which is always the case, but sometimes I lie to myself. 2 Chronicles 20 is the story of Jerusalem, and it is surrounded by the enemies of God, Multiple armies and nations have gathered together and amassed this huge army against Jerusalem and the king. And the people are understandably fearful. They are facing a force that they cannot defeat. And so King Jehoshaphat calls for a fast. It's like, we better fast. And he stands before the people, he assembles all the people together and he stands before the house of the Lord and he prays publicly. And if you read this passage, you will read the prayer and he praises God and he adores who God is and declares His greatness. And then he ends his prayer this way. I believe it's verse 12. He says, For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on You. What an awesome prayer. I found myself praying that a lot. I don't know what to do, Lord. My eyes are on You. This is too big, too great, too powerful. I'm calling it in. I'm tapping out. Lord, I'm looking to You. And God answers. It's awesome. The prophet comes and says, Thus saith the Lord. And God says, Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. He says, You will not need to fight in this battle. Just stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. And the Lord will be with you. By Paul asking the Thessalonians to pray, he's telling them, this is how we're going to battle. This is how we're going to get through this. It's prayer. 
got to understand the kind of battle you're in if you're going to know what kind of weapons you're going to use. And he asks a particular kind of prayer, right? He says, he prays that the Word of God will speed ahead and more people will be saved like they were. Now, there are a lot of things that we can pray for in the battle of faith. There are a lot of things that we do pray for, should pray for. I am sure many of you, as I do, when you face different conflicts and different hills to get over, you're like, okay, I'm going to pray for this, I'm going to pray for that, I'm going to pray for this person to repent, I'm going to pray for uh, this leader to do that, I'm going to pray for marriages to be healed, I'm going to pray for uh, violence to end, I'm going to pray for laws to be changed, I'm going to pray for doors to be opened. We like that phrase. Christian often prays that doors will be opened. It's interesting, I have found, and this might not be the case for you, but when people pray the door will be open, what happens next or what is spoken next is usually something they want. Pray a door will be open to this, a door will be open to that. It's not intrinsically bad, but it's interesting that it's taken from the Bible and the way it's used in the Bible in the letter of Colossians is very specific. Paul, again asking the Colossians for prayer, in chapter 4, he tells them to continue to steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Keep praying, keep praying. Then he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. Our weapons of war are prayer and the Word. When you have problems in your life, how am I going to get through this difficulty, this conflict, this issue? Nine times out of ten, the answer is pray and read your Bible. Because that is how we commune with God and that those are the weapons of war He has given us. They have power. But how often do we pray that in our daily battles? We're so pragmatic in our prayers. Declaring in many times in our prayers, Lord, this is how I think it will be fixed. Would you do this, Lord? How often do we forget the kind of battle that we are in? Whether that be in our own family, whether it be in our own city, whether that be in the nation that since Genesis chapter 3, the problem in the world has been very clear. All problems are a result of the rejection of God's Word. That's where the problems began. And so if we see and understand that all the problems in the world began with the rejection of the Word of God in our lives, it follows that the solution is found in restoring the Word of God to the center of our lives. And we should be praying to that end. And here's a little nugget for you. I'm not talking about just the problems in the world. I'm talking about the problems in our own hearts. Yes, the world needs the Word, but no less than we need it in our own hearts and souls. That our struggle is with disbelief and rejection and disobedience to God's Word. 
And so we ask the Lord that the Word will go forth. The Word will be implanted in our own hearts. The Word will spread everywhere. The Word will restore. The Word will change. Lord, do that. Even if it's different than what I might want. And as we do that, as you stand for the Word, whether you stand for it in your own home, you stand for it in the city, you stand for it in whatever community you're in, or outside as we engage with all these different things in the world, you will face opposition. This is an assault on the gates of hell. That's what Jesus is doing. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand. Gates don't move. Gates aren't attacking us. We're not defensive. We're attacking. But as you attack, you're going to get opposition. This is why Paul prays that they will also pray for him in the sense of being delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, he says. There are opponents This shouldn't come to a surprise to you, but the majority of people who have ever lived on the face of the planet and live today do not believe in God's Word. They do not love Jesus. They do not love Jesus' Word. They do not love Jesus' people. The majority of people do not love, believe. In fact, they hate God's Word. There are evil and wicked Men and women, people who hate Christ and hate Christians. The world may welcome you if you come with the love of Christ, but you start speaking the words of Christ and you will be rejected as He was. Jesus told us that. He said to expect that. And because that reality, when you stand for the truth, when you say there are lines in the sand, many Christians have said, That's, I, I want to be liked. And so they have compromised the truths. At least the truths that are offensive. Or they simply remain silent to avoid the disapproval of the masses. And I think, which I've said before, we have become so consumed with not offending men that we are no longer concerned with offending God. We have become so consumed with, I don't want to be offensive, as we continue to offend God with our silence or with our compromise. We want to be like the very thing Jesus warned against. It's like, be careful. In Luke 6, woe to you if everyone speaks well of you because that's exactly what they did to the false prophets. I love to be liked. You like to be liked. He says, I don't think you should love to be hated, but you'd expect it. And if everyone likes you, there may be a problem. But whether we win or lose battles, which we will win and we will lose battles, Paul says in verses 3-5, to regardless, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you 
that you're doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. That's such a beautiful couple verses because all he does is say, look to God, look to God, the Lord will do it, the Lord will do it, the Lord will do it. And how many times are we, even in our faith, talking about what we're going to do? Jesus wins and Paul's confidence is not in the people and their ability to survive, but in God's ability to faithfully fulfill His promises. We, several leaders went to a really cool conference this week down in Portland and one of the speakers was a seminary professor who was super smart and super funny, which is a hard combo. And he said something that really struck me talking about uh, pastors falling and uh, bad things happening in the world and going lawless and all these things. And he said, look, never forget that, yes, many if not most of the headlines in our world are pretty bad. They're bad news most of the time. But he said, but the news in heaven is always really boring because it's the same headline over and over again. Jesus is building His church. All things are going according to plan. Next day, Jesus is still building this church. Looks like all things are still going according to plan. The news is always boring or glorious in heaven. And so we fight when we fight the fight of faith from a place of victory, not for it. We fight from a place of victory, not for it. Enemies are defeated even though they're not fully abolished yet. They are defeated. The cross is where Jesus Himself said, it's done. It's finished. And so our confidence is not in ourselves, but in God. Paul writes that God will establish you. God will guard you. God will remind you of His love. God will help you endure through Christ as you look to something that is not yet seen. If you've ever read the book of Hebrews, I'm sure you've seen Hebrews chapter 11. It's known as the Hall of Faith. A series of different men and women who were faithful at the different times. One of the most disturbing aspects of that chapter is most of those people suffered and died for their faith. At the end of that chapter, it gets very specific about what's going on at that time period when the letter is likely written. And it describes many of the things that the Thessalonians themselves have endured or probably will endure. He says that some are being tortured, others are being mocked, others beaten, others in prison, some stoned, some sawn in two. Others afflicted, deserted, fed to lions. but they were faithful. The faithful didn't run to safety. The faithful ran like Christ. Hebrews 12 is the next chapter after 11. And this is what it says. He says, Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, faithful people who lived and died for their faith, looking to something they had not seen, a better country that was being prepared for them. He said, Let us lay aside every weight and sin and let us run with endurance 
endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him did what? Endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then it comes this, this gut punch in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. As I make this statement, I include myself in it. And it's a general statement. Most American Christians are the biggest pansies in the world. We have no clue about what persecution means. That's one of the biggest dangers in this country. It's become way too comfortable. I'm not convinced it'll always be like that. I think times are changing. And we read stuff like this, we're like, fed to lions. Christians in our day have rejected Christ for much less of a threat. And it's interesting, um, you may have seen in the news recently, the United Methodist denomination voted. Uh, they have been arguing over um, the truth of the Bible, particularly whether or not it endorses homosexuality, allows them to have gay clergy or uh, uh, endorse a gay marriage. And so they have basically had rules that have been somewhat biblical for most of their time, but they've never applied them. They've just kind of let people do whatever. And so they got to a point over the last 30, 40 years, we're like, we got to vote on this. So there's a very strong liberal contingent within that denomination. And surprisingly, they voted to remain traditional in their biblical views. And God be praised for that. It will cause a division either way. The liberals were going to leave or the conservatives were going to leave, so the denomination is going to be divided. But if you look beyond the news and see how did that vote take place, how did that happen? You'll see that 45-ish percent of the delegates for that denomination came from Africa. And that actually the conservative contingent that was fighting for the truth of God did not come from the United States, nor did it come from Europe. We are in a mission field. And that mission field has become uh, even more hostile, I believe, towards the gospel as the years go on. We need to get sober to the reality of the world that we live in here. There's a battle out there, but Paul in verses 6 to 12 speaks about the battle inside the church. And remember, this, this letter is being read publicly to this church. And in verses 6 to 12, he speaks about some of the soldiers in the fight who refused to fight. And as he did in his first letter, which is interesting, he addresses these group of people, which seems to be growing, called the idol. 
In fact, he dedicates seven of the 17 verses in this last chapter to talking about the idol, of which he already talked about in the previous letter. You notice in this letter, he doesn't, about, doesn't talk about the sexually immoral, which he already had. He doesn't talk about those who have lost loved ones, which he already had. But he brings up the idol again. Idleness seems to be a serious problem in the early church, and I would argue it's still a problem in today. Now, what do we mean by idol? Well, he fleshes out pretty clearly. He addresses those members of the church who are not working but only consuming the community's resources. They're much more communal than we are today, much more self-interdependent than we would be today. So it's felt even that much more strongly. More than just a disruption, which they certainly are, Paul describes them as burdensome busybodies. Getting in everyone's business and not actually working to do any business. They are apathetic adversaries, if you will. Contributing nothing but their criticisms to everything that's happening. Oh, you're not doing that right. Why are you doing it that way? As they do nothing. And he has some pretty strong commands for the church. Doesn't name names. But he reads it publicly. He commands the church to keep away or otherwise avoid those people who are walking in idleness. All around them, you can imagine, people are dying for their faith. They are fighting different fights of faith, waging wars and fighting battles on different hills. We all do in our lives in different places. And yet there's a growing number of members who are actually hindering the work by not helping, but apparently they're still showing up to stuff. And so Paul says, that's not how I taught you. He didn't spend too much time with them. He raised up some leaders and left pretty quickly. But in the time he was with them, he's like, I gave you a very specific example. He says, I didn't walk in and go, hey, I'm the apostle. Where's my special parking spot for my camel? And where's my special chair to sit on? Because you guys should be supporting me. He says he came in and he worked night and day, paid for everything so as to not be a burden. In other words, they didn't act as if they were entitled to anything, though they had the right to ask for it. You know, the spirit of entitlement is one of the strongest plagues in our culture and in our churches today. And the spirit of entitlement is the idea that um, I deserve something because I'm me. I breathe. Serve me. Very few things more anti-gospel than serve me. I deserve. The gospel, as I prayed early this morning, the cross of Christ shows us that we always have more than we deserve. Always. And also reveals to us that the path to greatness and the way to be great is to be a servant and to lay it all down for others. And this is the very opposite of what this group is doing. For some reason, the return of Christ has convinced a growing number of people to do nothing. That the Gospel means, hey, Jesus did it all, so I don't got to do nothing. 
So if that is where you are in belief or just even in practice, I will assure you that Jesus doesn't do everything so that I can be free to do nothing. Jesus does everything, and He does everything. I contribute nothing, we contribute nothing to our salvation but our sin, yea, us. Jesus does everything so that I can be freed to do something. And to know that whatever something I do, it's meaningful because it does unto the Lord and through and for Christ. So Paul, he's serious. He's like, refuse to put up with these people. Refuse to accommodate the consumer. The idle, dead weight in the church. And here's the kind of person that we're talking about. They're idle because they don't want to suffer the discomfort and cost of being a Christian. That's what it's all about. And Paul says, if they don't want to sacrifice for one another, serve one another, and ultimately help and carry the burden which is the mission of God, they shouldn't even eat. Let them go hungry. He goes even further to say, if anyone does not obey what they say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that they may be ashamed into repenting and changing. Those are hard words and the church doesn't often speak like that. Or if it does speak like that, if a pastor say that everyone thinks about somebody else. So don't do that. This is an inspired word to the church and I would argue it's a word to us to examine ourselves a little bit and go, am I that idle person? Not are they that idle person because I guarantee you, you can find someone that's a little less idle than you are. But everyone is supposed to be fighting the fight of faith. And you may not know this, but there's like a thousand different fighting styles, right? And I know none of them. Some of you know them, I'm sure. I know none of them. But when you see two people fighting, I will not be able to tell you what jujitsu, whatever, kung fu, karate they're doing. And it doesn't really matter because it's very clear when someone's fighting and when someone's not. Doesn't matter if they're pulling hair or kicking or biting or whatever, or they're like, you know, Kung Fu Master. Doesn't matter. That guy's fighting, that guy's standing still and getting beat up. We're all called to fight. You're designed to fight your way, some way, fight, even if you don't know a way to fight the fight of faith. And the Bible, it's incredibly explicit about condemning laziness and idleness and doing nothingness. And so the question for all of us to ask, and I include myself in this because just because I preach on a Sunday morning doesn't mean I get a free pass. There are plenty of idle pastors out there that preach on Sunday mornings. So we ask ourselves, am I the idle? Am I the lukewarm, the comfortable, the undisciplined, the indifferent, the flag-waving Christian? who works hard in every area of your life except in fulfilling the mission of God. Man, we work hard to build, plan vacations. Work hard to, to do things for our family. Work hard to accomplish things in our careers. 
most of which is going to go when Jesus returns. And you can see how meaningless it was. Am I the idol? Are you the idol? Because Paul told Timothy in his last letter that all Christians are to share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Who are you living to please? So Paul makes a turn here near the end of his letter to start talking to those, I would argue, who are the faithful soldiers. And there are faithful soldiers among us. That's a conversation you have with God that is not a conversation or an evaluation that I make of you or anyone else does. But Paul does delineate, there are idol in the church and there are faithful soldiers. And when you have those two groups, it can be really ugly because guess what? The faithful soldiers start getting irritated with the idol workers. And so Paul turns towards these faithful soldiers who are probably looking at the idol, getting irritated, getting angry. And he says, as for you brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. Talks about the idol and then says, but as for you brothers, the non-idol, don't give up. At a commencement speech in 1941, this is prior to Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill is giving a speech. The United States has not gotten involved or committed to be involved other than giving resources to World War II, and the United Kingdom is getting pounded. When it asked about his view of it in the speech, he shared this. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 and nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in. Accepting convictions of honor and good sense, never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Never give up. Paul tells him, don't give up. And he has to write this because there's a tremendous temptation to give up for two reasons. You see the lawlessness in the world and you go, does it even matter? Like, does, I, I, I'm, I'm fighting the good fight of faith. I'm standing firm and like nothing's changing. Does it even matter? So lawlessness in the world can tempt us to give up. But also, apathy in the church. Because you look at others and you're like, man, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I'm called to do. I'm being faithful and, and making sacrifices. And you're, you're succeeding. And I feel like I'm failing. Does anybody even care? Does it even matter? Very tempting to give up. I'm here to tell you that it does matter. And God faithfully rewards those who seek Him. Our faith does matter, even if the fruit is not immediately apparent. And in our instant gratification world, we easily give up when the fruit is not immediately apparent. Where's my point and click, God? 
Where's my instant delivery, God? I prayed. Why haven't things changed? Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians something very similar, talking about sowing and reaping. And he says, For the one who sows to his own flesh, as in Galatians 6, will flesh or will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then he says in verse 9, And let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us not grow weary in praying. Let us not grow weary in, in proclaiming God's Word. Let us not grow weary in obedience. Let us not grow weary in admonishing the idle. Let us not grow weary in encouraging the faint-hearted. Let us not grow weary in giving thanks. Let us not grow weary, grow weary in fighting the fight of faith. Why? For in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. The fruit is coming. The fruit is coming. When things get hard and when we start to play the compare game, we do start to see like, man, I see other people succeeding without suffering for Christ. And we're very tempted to go like, uh, I've sowed, where's the fruit? Is this really worth it? And I'm here to tell you that it is. It is if you live for the second life. Even if everyone gives up. And according to Paul, many will. Even if everyone gives up, don't you give up. Even if members of your family give up, don't you give up. Don't grow weary in doing good and standing for truth when we live in a bad world and the world gets better. Don't grow weary when the church goes bad. Don't go weary when your family goes bad or your situation goes bad. Live for the second life. But know that living for the second life doesn't come without a cost. In the first life. Some of you may be familiar with the story of John Allen I think it's pronounced Chow. He was a 26-year-old Christian missionary who was killed this, this last November. He paid some local fishermen to smuggle him into uh, what is called North Sentinel Island in the Indian Ocean. And the people that Chow chose for his mission are among the most impenetrable communities in the world They're known for their intense hostility towards outsiders. And they have killed or tried to kill just about everyone who has stepped onto their little rugged island that's about 700 miles south of India. It's a very isolated uh, group of hunter-gatherer society that, that no one's really engaged with. And this young man died. Before he was killed, he had written some letters, he had journals, and they found those, and he revealed two things in some of his final letters, one that he was willing to die, and the other that he was scared. In one journal, here's what he wrote, and I think this was a letter to his parents. 
says, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Now, there are a lot of blind unbelievers who will declare that John Allen Chow's sacrifice was foolish and meaningless. But sometimes I wonder how many idle believers will do the same as they sit and do nothing. In our eyes, he might appear foolish. Could have done it better. Could have done it different. But as Jim Elliott wrote, whose own death inspired a whole generation of missionaries in the 50s, he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If nothing else, we do get a very clear picture about what it looks like to lose your first life and live for the second. And never forget that the cross does show us that there is something worse than death in this life. And the resurrection shows us that there's actually something better than life. And he understood that. As we close, the last thing Paul writes in the last two verses is, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Paul asks the Lord of peace himself to give us peace. And the implication is that we can and should expect to need peace because things are going to get a little chaotic. I believe that God's peace comes to us insofar as we are faithfully going and walking with Him. As Jesus said, go make disciples and I will be with you always. He promised that He'd be with us to the end of the age. And I'm convinced the end of the age is just around the corner. For as Paul wrote in his very last letter, the time has come when people have itching ears. And they are beginning and have accumulated for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they've turned away from listening to the truth and they have wandered off into falsehood. And how do we respond to that? What do we do? And he tells Timothy, don't be anxious. Don't rebel. Don't hide away. He says, be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of the evangelist. Tell people about Jesus. Proclaim the reality of Jesus' death on the cross for sinners. Tell people that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Tell people that He is returning again for those who've repented and believe in the gospel. The work of the evangelist, you know what that actually is? It's the work of restoration. It's calling a broken world back to the truth of God and to live how He designed us to be. And the work of restoration, if you've restored anything, it's not real quick. It's slow. It's painful. And at first, it's kind of dirty and ugly. 
Because it requires you taking whatever that thing is being restored and looking beyond what you see to what you know is going to be. And seeing the beauty and the restoration that's coming. That's how we're to live as Christians as we wait for the life to come, looking at this broken life. And that's how we're to live as we engage with the world and we see brokenness and depravity and sin and addiction and affliction. We go, there's something better. And we share Christ with them. I know there are those among us who think, doing the work of evangelists, I'm barely treading water. I got a family, I got kids, I got responsibilities, I got this, I got that. Like, doing the work of evangelism. I'm not getting on a boat and starting to row to some island where I'm going to get killed for Jesus. Sorry, my life is, I'm overwhelmed. I understand that. That's, that's real. But I would ask you, if, can you pray for those who are fighting? Will you at least fight idleness? in your own life by doing the work of getting on your knees and praying for the persecuted church, for the missionaries, for the planters, for the faithful Christians who go out just to the world and, and minister and, and evangelize in their daily lives? Would you pray for the moms in their own homes? Would you just pray? I don't know what I can... You can do that. And that is not just preparing you for a greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Believe it. It's calling in the big guns. Doing what we can't do. But there are those among us who, guess what, are called to go to the front lines. There are those in this church, there are those in this room who God is stirring to be a leader, to be a pastor, to be a planter, to be a missionary, to go. You may not be called to vocational ministry. Maybe it's just ministry through your vocation, but you're called to go, to, to be on those front lines and to battle. And, and some of us here are called to sacrifice perhaps our lives one day for Christ. But I'll tell you one thing, every single one of us is called to sacrifice our lifestyle right now. To look at the first life as worthy of losing as we look forward to the second life. And so I pray that we'll not be idle and that every single one of us will do the work of an evangelist fighting the good fight of faith until Jesus returns or we return to Him. Amen? Let's pray.